RA Exchange. Hey, welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the producer of the show. Today, I'm pleased to present part three of our series, Future Proof, presented by Bradley Zero and his platform, Rhythm Section. If you missed the first two episodes with Jordan Rakai and Moxie, you can go check it out on our SoundCloud. Future Proof is a series of masterclasses that Rhythm Section put on with the goal of equipping people with the tools needed to work in the music industry, as well as to demystify some of what goes on behind closed doors. Each talk, which was recorded IRL, focuses on a different theme and invites a guest to speak on that theme. This week, it's how to run a record label with Ninja Tunes' Alex Ives, interviewed by Rhythm Section's Emily Jones. Ives has been at Ninja Tunes for 10 years as the head of physical retail, and he also runs Big Data, a sublabel that originally started in the 90s, but that was relaunched last year with the goal of being handled exclusively by minorities and people of color. NinjaTune is a relatively big operation with offices in London and LA. It started in 1991, and it's responsible for putting out big names in electronic music like Bonobo, Fortet, Bicep, Eamon Tobin, and more that have flirted with mainstream success. Ives unpacks the various departments and teams that make up this enterprise. There's manufacturing, sync and publishing, product management, and A&R, and he suggests a few routes for young people to get their foot in the management world's door. He says it's often not a matter of trying to score a hard-earned internship in a major. Oftentimes, it's just about starting the work yourself, whether it's booking your friends, publishing your own tunes, or learning the ins and outs of distribution, and then putting that on your CV. Once you've done it once or twice, it's on your CV, I've distributed music. So sometimes I think it's pulling away the mystique and not getting too afraid of what the job title says. It's just do it and you've done it. That's real experience then. It doesn't always have to be through someone that's employed you. When I started 10 years ago, it was a different it was a different landscape. But now, an awful lot of the barriers, financially speaking, for example, have, have, have gone away. So as long as you've got an internet connection and, and let's say a laptop, and I appreciate that, it's still a privileged position to be in. But if you have those things, you can set up a band camp. You can put your music on it. Well, you've just, just distributed something online. You can put a, record a bit of music, put it on Bandcamp, put it out. There you go. You just Maybe you're a label now. The world of recording and distribution is changing quickly. The streaming economy aside, labels like NinjaTune are also working to contend with the environmental implications of pressing records and are working with consumers to change their habits around buying vinyl, adapting how they package each release, joining environmental lobbying groups, and committing themselves to being carbon negative. Ives also talks about the inner workings of a big label's back end, like the A&R team, whose role is to occasionally get their hands deep in an artist's work so that it's better geared towards radio airplay, bookings, and profitable releases. This is a valuable listen for anyone who's harbored an interest in working for a major, going down a DIY route, or getting signed to the first imprint themselves. So definitely listen through until the end. If you want to watch the accompanying video for this interview, you can check it out on Future Proof's YouTube playlist, which is hyperlinked in the write-up for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, and without further ado, here is Alex Ives. So, welcome everyone to the final Masterclass in Rhythm Section's Future Proof series. I'm Emily, also known as EJ or Echo Juliet. I'm a DJ, producer, and a percussionist. Um, 
And I'm one of the two people that runs the Future Proof program for Rhythm Section alongside Henry, who's out in the room somewhere. For those of you who don't know, uh, Future Proof grew out of Rhythm Section's Patreon during lockdown, um, which offered online masterclasses and mentoring. Um, but we really wanted to make that offer free and open to everyone. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Alex Ives of Ninja Tune, Big Dada. He's also an artist and runs his own label. Um, many hats, metaphorically. Yeah, loads of hats, but just one head, so they're just piled up here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, we'll hopefully touch on all the different things that you do in the course of this chat. You run a label, you work at a label, you're an artist. Maybe we should um, kick off with um, what you do at Ninja Tune. Sure, yeah. So, hello, everyone. Nice to, nice to meet you. Um, so, I've been at Ninja for 10 years now, just over 10 years, so... Currently, I'm um, head of physical retail. So that's basically when we have records coming out, I talk to the record shops, primarily the independent record shops. So that's online as well as brick and mortar, which we call it, so ones you can walk into, but not so much Amazon and HMV. So that, that's what you would not consider an independent record shop. And um, sometimes it's as simple as just letting them know, hey, we've got this record coming out, you should take a listen, have a chat with them. And then other times it's arranging things from in stores, getting posters on the windows, events, all sorts of bits really. And um, personally for me, I love it because it's just chatting to people like me who love music. There's really not an awful lot of um, finessing you need to do. You just kind of go in, you chat to them about the music. Do you like it? Do you not like it? Doesn't, you know, will it sell? Great, let's figure out something fun to do. And for me, I find it, one of the most tangible parts of working at a label because you're working with the folk that are going to sell a record to a fan that's going to take that record home and it's really tangible like I appreciate the importance of streaming and downloading I think it's very important but I think I'm a bit of a romantic so I find that really charming part of it um I also label manage um along with one of my colleagues Big Dada which is a label we relaunched uh, a year and a bit ago. Um, Big Dad is a sub-label in Ninja Tune, which was started in the 90s and sort of unofficially became a bit defunct in the last few years. The original founder left, went on and did. He's a, he's a writer, so writing books. And um, in the wake of George Floyd, BLM, and an awful lot of those kind of discussions that came out of that, we wanted to set up... Um, some discussions with our CEO about things we think could be done better. And one of the, of, of many things that we did, we wanted to relaunch Big Data exclusively run by um, people of color, people from minority ethnic backgrounds within Ninja and exclusively they're the decision makers. So we're kind of doing that as well as a, just trying to find other models that could work within existing structures. So that's another thing we're doing. And then I kind of started working at Ninja doing digital stuff so I've gone all the way from digital over to physical so amazing um uh, could you tell us a bit about because you yeah it was great to get an understanding of like what your role is and what you're doing mm -hmm. could you tell us a bit about some of the other departments and teams that exist within Ninja and how what you do like interacts absolutely them? yeah I mean Ninja's um for those that aren't aware um it's a label that's been around 32 years now. We've got an office in Los Angeles as well as in London. And one thing that I think when we've had interns or when we've had folk coming through is quite good is we have an awful lot in-house. 
So I've been at smaller labels before. I was at Ninja where it's, you know, two or three people running it and PR, sync, publishing, design, manufacturers, all outsourced um, just because they're a small team. But because Ninja's quite big, uh, big in terms of uh, personnel, we've got like probably nearly 80 people worldwide, which for an independent, that's, that's, that's pretty, pretty big. Um, we've got a lot in-house. So we've got manufacturing, obviously we manufacture at uh, uh, manufacturing plants, but we have our manufacturing team that design and lay up everything and can work with artists on their vision if they want to do different kinds of vinyl, CD products. We've got that in-house, we can work with them. Um, sync and publishing, so the folk that will try and get the music onto adverts, TV shows, etc. We've got um, project managing, A&R, all of that's in-house. So it means that we get a really good understanding of working well together. Um, where I sit, I kind of sit between the folk that are making the records, a project manager who, let's call that the shepherd of the campaign, just making sure the parts are going in the right direction. And then uh, fulfillment, warehouse folk, and then distributors. So even though a distributor, quite literally, let's say on a physical term, will get the record from a warehouse into a record shop. A big part of what they do as well is sort of what I do, selling that into the record shop, making them, if you think how many records are out each week, there's an awful lot that you go, okay, we're, and I say it on purpose, that you're competing with for space and for people's attention. So it's also trying to like, big it up be like you know this is the one you should stop put it on your on your on your windows on the website etc but because we're quite a big operation we we take a lot of it in-house because we kind of feel like maybe we can take the most care and bespoke approach of it and the beauty of that is everything that happens so let's say we get a really nice retail result i can go tell the, the streaming team who talk to spotify and apple hey we've got a bunch of in-stores across um, all the rough trades across the UK, and then they're going to go to New York and do one in New York. That's a that's a good bit of promo. Oh, let's tell the press team that. Okay, that's great. And actually, that means we might sell more records. Let's repress a few more of this in an American edition. So it means we can be really uh, nimble, relatively speaking, because we're all in-house. I can be like, hey, just got this through. What do you reckon? Cool, should we do this, that, or the other? And it means we can be quite dynamic in that regard. So that's where I sort of see it. And then if you kind of look at the structure of it, it kind of works similarly in the digital team, the, po the people that do the digital distribution. So that's getting it on the Spotify's, the Apple's, uh, Amazon's, Tidal's, etc. They'll work closely with the teams that do the pitching and the press team. So let's say, or the radio team, oh, Animac wants to do a first play, da 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 or whoever. Um, we actually need to deliver this at a certain time so it comes after the first play. And again, that can kind of be a benefit of being quite in-house and then that will impact on maybe when we put the vinyl on sale. So we're really quite bespoke in how we try to do things. And I don't know, I kind of find that useful and I kind of have this philosophy whenever new folk come in, I was like, learn your job and smash that, but learn a bit about the people either side of you just so that you can understand the whole machine, so to speak, and it can kind of help you work with one another. Um, I don't know if that makes sense or any of that yeah. was gobbledygook.
No, that was that was great. Thank you. That was a, like an amazingly comprehensive overview in a short amount of time. <laughs> okay, smashing. Yeah. Um, you mentioned like new folk coming in. I know you're quite passionate about getting young people who might not yeah. normally think they could work in those kind of roles mm -hmm. into into businesses yeah. like Ninja Tune. Yeah. Um, what kind of entry level roles are there now, and and what what might there be in future that maybe we haven't thought about yet? Yeah, that's a wicked question, and you know I think just to preface, preface that, is that sometimes the hardest thing is even knowing what jobs exist. I know when I started, I was like, uh, A&R, yeah, that's a thing. Um, press, that's a thing. Booking, that's a thing. I just didn't know anything else about it. And half of the battle is actually starting to understand, okay, there's publishing, sync, distro, retail, blah, 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 a load of the things I just mentioned. Um, so within those roles sometimes the less jazzy ones are actually quite a great entry into it so my first entry into it was i started interning at a little label in brian called fat cat there's like three three or four guys that work there and they were like cool you're gonna do the newsletter i was like cool i've never done a newsletter before it's like cool figure it out you know it could have been a bit more guidance but it meant okay actually i've i could do that and then from that it was I think I can do some digital bits. And from that, from that, it started to be that what roles exist digitally. So probably because of when I started 10 years ago, just before streaming became so dominant in what it was, it's like, okay, well, you understand how to upload something to SoundCloud, which is as simple as it sounds perhaps nowadays. Back then it was like, oh, I mean, yeah, I guess so. Okay, so you're young, you do that. So I think... Sometimes in terms of looking ahead, what's evolving now? Okay, we're talking about AI, we're talking about Web3, we're talking about a lot of these other areas. That's great to be aware of it because I think in the next five to 10 years, that's probably where an awful lot of expertise is going to be missing from even my generation because I'm not the first person using TikTok. I'm not the first person, so I'm learning it. But there's like, my sister probably knows more about it than me. And my little sister, she doesn't work in music. In terms of currently, I think there's loads of jobs going in, in like, it sounds dead, dead dry, but like data input stuff. So for example, in publishing, you need to get a lot of metadata, put it into spreadsheets, make sure that goes off to the collection agency so that they can start to pay the artists. And from that, there's a trajectory into ooh, understand publishing. Maybe there's a role in creative sync. Oh, actually, maybe you know a bit about music. You've got a good musical ear. You could get into A&R to bring in artists that could be good to sign to be songwriters, as an example. For me, it was, I, could get, I was actually, I didn't realise I was quite good at understanding um, how to upload stuff to the back end of iTunes, for example. So then I started going through the catalogue at Domino Records, which was an internship I had before Ninja, and just going through their back end, uploading it, or onto iTunes. And then from that, I got a job at Ninja Tune doing distribution because I knew the difference between a WAV and a FLAC and a JPEG and a, and, a, and, a, and a TIFF or whatever, which sounds dead simple, but actually the folk that have been working there a long time didn't, didn't have to think about that stuff. So I would say probably a lot of people now already have a lot of the skills. It's just refining them and understanding how you can say, no, actually, you probably already know how to do a bunch of this stuff, just reframing it.
Yeah, I mean, if you're a DJ and you put your music in record box, you know what metadata is Boom. because you, well, hopefully you have a fairly organised music collection and exactly. <laughs> things exactly. are labelled. I was just chatting to you beforehand and there was a job going today at Sony as a content coordinator, some name, something like that. Content. Basically it was, do you know the difference between a WAV and an MP3? Plug it into a distribution platform and um, working with another team to make sure the right information goes in it. Sounds dead fancy, the name, but the reality is someone's just got to show you how to do it. If you haven't already, and there's a lot of tools out there for you to just practice. I was telling this young guy I was sort of mentoring, was like, just go and open a tune court account. Just practice. Once you've done it once or twice, it's on your CV on distributed music. So sometimes I think it's pulling away the mystique and not getting too afraid of what the job title says. It's just do it and you've done it. That's real experience then. It doesn't always have to be through someone that's employed you. Yeah, I mean, even if you're doing it for friends, helping friends out. Best way. It's yeah. the best way. I think that's the best way. Like, you know, I said this to some some people I was chatting to. Like, when I started 10 years ago, it was a different, it was a different landscape. But now, an awful lot of the barriers, financially speaking, for example, have, 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 have gone away. So as long as you've got an internet connection and, and let's say a laptop, and I appreciate that, it's still a privileged position to be in. But if you have those things, you can set up a band camp, you can put your music on it. Oh, you've just, just distributed something online and that can be then available to everyone in the world and you could put a record a bit of music put it on Bandcamp put it out there you go you've just maybe you're a label now you know you want yeah. to do booking but it's really hard to get a job maybe you just got a couple of mates got a mate in Birmingham you've got a mate in Manchester you've got a mate in Edinburgh oh let me just help you get a couple gigs I'll get you some floors to sleep on and alright you just booked your mate their first UK tour three dates done and now your mate's got an agent, which makes them look good. Right. And now you've been a booker. And I think some people think it has to be much bigger to start to feel validated in those roles. And that's, I think that's that's a really big hurdle. But if you can start to feel empowered in what you're doing, it can really change how quickly you start to believe in yourself. Um, I know that can sound a bit maybe not as tangible as some other things, but I know that was something for me to get my head around. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really, really important point. Um since we were sort of talking about the future and and what things might look like and how, how things are changing, I mean, you, yeah, part of your job is around physical music, records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> changed, yeah. CDs, um, which is actually like quite a fast-changing landscape at the moment, I mm. guess. I mean, what what's your take on how things are going now and, and what direction they might be going in with physical music? In some ways, it's not changing very much. But in other ways, I think there's two areas, I guess, right? And I think one area is people are becoming, I say people, some people, and I hope more people do, are becoming more aware of the impact on the environment of manufacturing. And the reality is you're making a lot of single-use plastic, you're making a lot of stuff that doesn't sell and gets put in landfill. The reality of how we make records is so ineffective. You know, you go, maybe we'll sell 5,000. Let's push, let's, oh, damn, I only sold 1,000. Damn, we've only pressed 500. We need a thousand more. Fuck. And then, so it's, it's really, really uh, hard to be precise in that. And while she can recycle vinyl, that still means you've got to ship it somewhere. That's, that's, you've got to ship it back. You've got to use all the kind of impacts on the environment just to get to the point where you recycle it. CDs, landfill. So on that regard, there is people looking into more ways of trying to be more ecological with how we're manufacturing. And 
how we can re-educate consumers to be cool with little defects. You buy a record and maybe it's got a little bit of a bent bent corner, that then they can't resell that, it goes to waste. And then you've had to like, so if actually people are like, okay, you know what, it's, it is what it is. And unless there's an actual fault with it, that's one thing. Another thing is look, getting rid of like cellophane. The reason cellophane really exists is so that when they receive your record, it's less likely to be damaged. What happens, you pull it off, you put it in the bin, goes to landfill more often than not. If we could be cool with the fact that, hey, you know what, warts and all it comes, but I can still play the record. It feels like a small thing, but I think it's a start. Um, and I was chatting to you a lot before, but like the way we make things is, you know, minimum five, a hundred, five hundred, a thousand, depending on how much you're pressing. That's maybe you only want to sell fifty. Costs a bit too much to do that. In my mind, let's say over the next ten years, if we could get to a situation, you could, let's say, three D printing evolve to the point where you could really create high fidelity things you could just print on demand no waste that would be a dream right so i think that's one area that i think people are looking at it's going to take a bit of time a technologically to get there and b then re-educating the consumer to be cool with that you know if you print on demand it's going to take a bit longer to reach you so maybe next day delivery is not a, not a thing but if people are cool with that the other side to it i think is um consumer habits which has been an interesting one. Vinyl's obviously had a wee bit of a resurgence over the last, you don't know, five plus years. And I think for for many people, that's that's wicked. I think that's wicked. And I think you look at a lot of formats. We're in a we're in a access um, economy as opposed to an ownership economy. Like why own a car when you can zip car? Why have a book collection when you could Kindle it? Why have a record collection when you could just have everything on Spotify? So if you're choosing to buy something, that's a massive testament to the fact that I want to own it. I want to be a patron of the arts. I'm going to make a space in my house to put or flat to put it in. That's, that's in an era where you don't have to do that. So I think that shows that there's still an awful lot of love to investing in, in something that you find passionate. So I think that won't change. And I think in many ways that's been an entry point to people. I think you see a lot of folk maybe getting a bit sassy when people are buying records, they ain't got record players yet. I think on the opposite, that's the best thing ever. Like, you're buying something before you even have the ability to play it. That's how much you want to get involved in being a music collector. But what I would love to see is people thinking of CDs, right? Um, You could probably get all your classics, like, I don't know, Led Zeppelin 1, The White Album, Never mind, whatever, just your classics. You probably get that for like 20 quid and you start a record collection. And it's just about investing. Put, play them on, on CD, share them with your mates. I think sometimes it's just about being dynamic and how you want to start your collection and investing in these things. So I think people are like pretty romantic about it still as well. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really a really nice point. I think it's like Buying physical music has become like a symbol of fandom. For real, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, like people, like you said to like perhaps your parents' generation when like they could only buy records and they'd, they'd get that record. It was hard to get and they'd go to school with it. Like proud, like I got that record. No, I think that's really a really lovely thing to hold on to. Um, and yeah, you, you touched there on the sustainability thing. It'd be really interesting to hear a bit more about like what Ninja's doing around being sustainable because I know that's quite a big kind of, concern yeah like our ceo he's really um 
putting an awful lot of time and effort into finding ways in which we can try to be a bit more you know, sustainable, like Ninja committed to being carbon negative uh, as of last year. And oftentimes that's offsetting carbon emissions that have gone into making the records, etc. And um, being part of lobbying groups, uh, again, exploring some of the stuff I've been talking about. You know, some things are working, some things are not. For example, one that didn't quite take off was um, a collection of labels and distributors had a nearly mint, what was it called? Something like nearly mint editions, which is all the stuff I said. Maybe there's a defect on the print. Maybe there's um, the labels a bit scratched, but the music's fine. We'll sell them at a discount. So it didn't quite take off. And I think that's that's a audience education thing. Like, but it's just trying to look at these these initiatives, looking at biodegradable packaging. It all sounds really simple when you think of it, but you know, you've got to find the manufacturer to do it, and you've got to find um, the distribution ways and finding out, okay, maybe the manufacturer's in France, so I need to find a green vehicle to get it here. So they're kind of just working on those types of initiative, and then, like I say, offsetting it with um, like planting trees and other various bits and bobs that can try to balance it as much as possible when you're still manufacturing if you consider the most ecological thing would be to not make stuff just just not release music yeah <laughs> it will just release it in a way that doesn't Did like you... yeah but yeah i wouldn't have a job then would i <laughs> <laughs> presumably that all that kind of level of consideration also comes into the merch side of things as well mm-hmm. like i think you were saying when we chatted before that quite a lot of, quite a lot of effort and thought is <laughs> gone into that more so than I would ever have expected to be honest for real like that's another big one I mean I didn't know an awful lot about the garment industry to be honest but we have an artist um who is on who's on signed to the label who's really uh, clued up on that because him and his partner wanted to start making a uh like a more green clothing line which didn't happen but he, he, looked, he read up about it and we were looking at ways as part of this broader thing we're doing of trying to be more ecological as well as e- ecological like just conscious like not getting stuff from sweatshops not getting stuff from places which are really damaging to the environment that you're that you're getting it manufactured from and uh it's a minefield it's a total minefield you kind of start going down the rabbit hole and you realize if, if a company's offering an ecological range it means that they also have an unecological range which means they're probably bolting it on and outsourcing it to someone reality right that's what we were finding and then you'd start to find the people that did claim to have ecological credentials that you didn't have to go far back in the supply chain before it's outsourced again and then you're like well and then it becomes like well i guess i have to trust you that there's not child labor in making that how do i know that the water's not coming from a local village that needs it It becomes really difficult and um then you have all the like accreditation stuff. Like one of them was the Fair Fairware Foundation, where I was like, "Oh, that was created by the Dutch garment industry to accredit themselves." Sounds great, right? It's just bullshit. So like, we ended up finding one which was, and this is not to be like a nationalist thing, but try and find one locally in the United Kingdom, preferably, because it just means there's less transport that gets to your warehouse. Don't put it on a plane and. Top to bottom, own the operation. So they know everyone in the supply chain. Solar-powered um, factory. But it costs more because you think a T-shirt you're buying for a tenner. Do you think people who made that are getting paid well? Probably not. So it's just you just have to accept it's going to cost a bit more. So it's just those little bits, really. And it's quite fascinating when you think about it and get into it. But 
Um, I don't know. I hope more people are able to start doing it. And when you see it more and more, it starts to become a bit more normalised. Yeah, and I guess there's also maybe an opportunity for people to be sharing knowledge about that. Like, if you've done all that research, yeah. like... You tell your mate who works yeah. at LA, which we've done, we're like, oh, you should check out these guys. They're really great. This bloke's really enthusiastic about it. He's happy for us to bring business to them. And then it's just... Sharing's caring. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of caring, yeah. <laughs> it's a perfect segue into yeah. what I was going to ask you next. Um, which is that, you know, we're talking about being sustainable mm. environmentally. Mm. I think there's also something interesting around being sustainable in the way you deal with people. Yeah. Um, because there's quite a high turnover of people in this industry, both artists and behind the scenes. 100%. Um, so could you just tell us a bit about kind of, yeah, how how you and well, in everything you do, I guess, are trying to be, be sort of sustainable in how you look after the people <clears throat> that you're working with? Yeah, you know... People talk a lot about mental health and how important it is, but I think we're still very reactive to it. Do you know, if you break your leg, there's no expectation you come to the office maybe for a bit. Maybe you're thinking about uh, having more accessible um, kind of ways that people can get into the office. But oftentimes with mental health, you got someone's got to have a breakdown before you do anything about it. And then do you do anything structurally to, to prevent other people doing it? I think there's a real lack in duty of care on the artist side because maybe more often than not, they're independent contractors or they're, they're working on their own. And sure, you might have a really conscientious manager if you have a manager at all, but then where's the duty of care for that manager? So there's a big gap there. And, you know, it's an industry that's got a big history of self-medicating and people having a lot of mental health issues that it's so much pressure. Putting out a record putting out music. I'm sure there's the same in other industries, but in this industry, it's, it's, it's awfully like overwhelming for people. And you see them drop off, sadly, because there's no one looking out for it. You know, oh, just done a record, got to go on tour, got to sell down records. Maybe you just can't hack it right now. So you need a conscientious team, label, manager, promoters, etc. And I think to some degree it's changing, but on the other hand, you know, not quick enough. Yeah, and still, still a kind of capitalist well, that's the, context. I mean, that's it, isn't it, yeah. really? Oh, we've invested all this money in you. You've got to sell them records, right? And, I, you know, I, I think it's really difficult. Um, there were, there, I mean, for example, when we relaunched Big Data, we set up a, a resources page. And as simple as it's just signposting Help Musicians UK, signposting people that might be able to help um We've just given some advice on the stresses that can come with signing a record deal. Sometimes it's just as, as simple as someone saying, I've been there, mate. Don't worry about it. It's normal. So you're not beating yourself up. And then on the other hand, we partnered with Mind to put together um, packs, which when we have new signings, we'll send it out to them, which are new signing packs. Hey, you know what? This is going to be, these are some of the stresses you might come across. You may not feel you want to talk to us, but it's not a taboo. And it's, you know, not everyone takes you up on it. But if you start to normalize that part of the discussion, the other side to it's the industry side. So let's say from a label perspective, it's like, what can you do better? Okay, people could be kinder to each other. They could talk to each other a bit nicer. You could let, if someone's just feeling like, I can't, I can't get out of bed today and do this. That's all right. Do you know? 
it's like we're not saving lives so let's just sort of make it a bit kinder and I think those are just a start you know I was chatting to someone at Major and they've got uh, mental health first aiders you know you send a lot of people on first aid courses here you know cut your finger put your finger in the air put a plaster on it or if someone's just like had a really shitty call with a manager or someone else and they're just like oh, I just can't do the rest of the day maybe there's just someone in the office like spots it just take the afternoon off mate it's cool it's, it's, that sounds small but it doesn't happen a lot so when we're talking to some of the younger people that are coming in that we would hope would be the next generation of CEOs like make that a priority where you can because we have a pretty stiff upper lip or blah 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 you know tough it out attitude and that's just bullshit in my opinion yeah I think that's so important like I mean the number of times that I've had dealings with particularly agents who hmm. have seem to have a real anger problem they're so mad aren't they yeah <laughs> so like, angry with those stuff it's a gig mate like, do you know what i mean right it's just like <laughs> yeah so yeah i think i think having having a third party or someone you know, even hmm. someone who's within the organization who can be that sounding board and offer that perspective is really 100%. really 100%. valuable um and you mentioned before um when we were chatting about this that um there's also an interesting challenge that comes with that when you're pushing to be more diverse and involve a more diverse range of people that yeah. that that I guess there's even more of a need for that kind of support. 100%. Like we've been running a course. So kind of how we became um, connected, like Ninja, we've been running a course with South Bank Centre and Lambeth Council, ideally targeting some people between 18 and 25, ideally from different socioeconomic backgrounds and perhaps of neurodiversity and, 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 and then other various kind of perhaps underrepresented groups within the industry. And then trying to look at ways in which we can help them kind of get jobs, but also yeah, even more than we realised how opaque it is for those pe people who might struggle with something to get in. Like little things like we said, if you can't commit to five days a week, 10 to 6, you're not going to get employed. Well, actually, if you've got to look after, if you're a carer for someone, what if you've got a, a chronic illness that you have to go to regularly have appointments for? Doggy dog. And that's really heartbreaking, actually, because we all talk about wanting to get more people in, but not, not willing to actually be flexible enough to get them in. And then you also look at, it's one thing to say, we want people from all these different communities and do nothing about making it feel safe for them to come in. Nothing to make them feel like this is a safe space to exist. Not tokenized, not um, not just there to like be a tick box. And um, it'll be a bit demoralizing when you, you have all these uh, nice ideas and then you send people out to the world and you're like, fuck, nothing, nothing's changing. But to be positive on it, they're going to be the next generation of CEOs, hopefully, if not everyone just gets Nepo baby to the top. And and you start to have a generation that is kinder. I think we're already seeing it in many regards. And, you know, Ninja's an old label. It's only been around 30 years, right? Warp, 33 years or something. So that's not that long. So these people start their own companies. And one would hope that they do that and it's more flexible. So it's the other side of the coin, one would hope. Yeah, it's definitely becoming more common now. I think for people to to sort of you know take mental health days or be yeah. be more confident in giving that as a a reason for needing time off or whatever as well. I think I, I hope it is the beginning of a yeah. generational change. Sometimes you're seeing it at the big corporations. 
and as, you know, as much as that might feel a million miles away from working at a little record shop or something, that's often where the change can start. You see like blue chip companies, finance companies or whatever, stuff that feels alien perhaps. But actually, if they can show it works and they're only really caring about bottom line, it becomes an easier discussion to have. You know, if there's an industry, we said, let's everyone just take Monday off. Nothing happens on Monday anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's like, okay, cool. Yeah. Right, brilliant. Three-day weekend. Everyone's a bit a bit more rested. Could happen. Just takes a few people to like lobby for it. Everyone try and get Monday off, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm 100% behind that. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> it's an like, easy argument to make, isn't oh, yeah. it? <laughs> um, just sort of um, circling back to kind of where we started and talking about... Um, about what you do at the label mm. and your involve with, involvement with Big Dada. Mm. Um, I suspect that quite a lot of people in the room and watching this are kind of interested to know about, about A&R yeah. um, and, and getting signed to a label. Mm. Could you first explain a little bit about what A&R is? Sure. You know, I guess to some degree there's two elements to it. Um, on the one hand, that can be going out and finding talent. So as simply as, you know, going to gigs, looking online, and then the other part of it can be helping develop that talent. So to start with the looking for talent bit, um, I wish I could say the most important thing is that your music speaks for itself. Now, if we take it that it's good music, that's a great start, but certainly at a label where it's a wee bit bigger and it's perhaps looking to invest in stuff that will be able to turn a profit and develop into a career, not just a release, then we're also really looking at audience. So if you've got good, let's just take it as you've got really good music. That's just like a given. Then it's like, cool, okay. Um, how many people would buy that music? All right. Maybe you're not sure yet. Okay, so have you done any shows? Brilliant. How many tickets can you sell? Not how many lineups have you got on on a festival because it's harder to gauge how many people are there for you. How many people will invest in you as an artist? Buy a record buy a ticket or buy a t-shirt and that's a really important way to start to get an idea of an engaged buying fan base and that's a big area that we'll look at so and and it can be really tough sometimes to cut between hype and reality so a lot of artists will get loads of good press get on the radio play loads of big gigs but actually not have an awful lot of people buying into them investing into them like fans um fans that will spend money on it. So that's a really big area. And we'll break that into like, let's say you've put out a record or look at how many records did you press? If we can find that, how many of them were sold? Um, how much promotion did you get from record shops? Because record shops are a really great barometer to people that are buying the physical. How many streams have you got? And I know that sounds awfully unromantic, but no matter how much you like physical, if you're streaming, like, you can stream in perpetuity and just keep racking up, racking up a bit of money. And that's a really good way of starting to see how that grows. So we'll look at a lot of those metrics and start to put together an idea of where an artist is at. And sometimes there's some wicked stuff. It's just not, you can get signed too soon. And then you get an advance, wicked. And advances say, uh, we'll loan you the money to perhaps finish your record and, uh, put together some some other like promotional bits or whatever. And then that'll be recoupable. We won't, you know, that means we'll recoup that from record sales. 
in, in an independent that you know we don't do 360 deals we just do ninja 50 50 um meaning once it's recouped we split the profits 50 50 um but if we're not quite sure that the investment would quite quite get to that point perhaps it's not the right time we our dream is for you as an artist to recoup and then start earning money from your art and build a career so sometimes that means starting much smaller and accepting that right now people are not probably gonna watch my three-hour documentary about the time i went on tour in tokyo it's, it probably is really interesting but maybe it's a money hole and that's cool if you just want to do it for the pure expression of art and that's sometimes something you haven't considered as an artist too like what if any compromises would i be willing to make to enter into this business agreement which is what it is right it's a business agreement i'm giving you some money to invest in you and you're going to do these various bits hopefully to help we pay on that investment and then we can start earning money together that sounds really 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 corporate but kind of just is what it is right well maybe you're like i don't want to fucking compromise and now i'm doing that three hour documentary and then on top of that i'm doing this that and the other it's like big ups that's your artistic vision then maybe this relationship isn't the right one so that's also something to consider i i think a lot of people think that that's the route but i think more than ever like go diy then that's empowering that's super empowering. Like you're the you're master of your own vision and you can learn about it all. You can make all your kind of connections and you can do it exactly how you want. And hey, it might actually turn out to be completely commercially viable. So that's one side of it. What was the second half of the question? I think you answered the question. Did I? Right, okay, yeah, yeah, smashing. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh no, just the development side very oh, quickly yeah. was, let's say you do get signed, let's say we're working together, then it can also be helping refine that. And um, again, it can sometimes feel a little bit counter to the pure artistic vision of someone, but it could be like, you know what? Three volumes of songs with five-minute intros. Beautiful, love it. Really going to be hard to get that on the radio. So maybe we could work on a radio edit. Maybe we could tweak this bit here. And hey, have you considered getting in um, an actual session drummer to play this bit instead of like those samples? And it... It's just helping navigate those bits and refine the package. So that's another part of the A&R is working creatively with an artist um, or group or whatever to to get that package ready to be put into the work. Amazing. Thank yeah. you. That was, yeah, you definitely asked the question. Okay, right on. Cool. <laughs> um, on that theme of, you know, sort of going the DIY route first, mm. trying things out, um, it might be interesting if you could just give us a little insight onto the sort of type of journeys that the artists you're working with have been on up to the point of getting signed yeah um i think when we chatted before you there were two quite contrasting examples that you mentioned yes. can you remember who they are i'm sure no <laughs> <laughs> was one bicep yeah one was bicep yeah. the other one was black country new road okay yeah well done okay yeah. cool so you know so we talked a wee bit about um community right so that community can be as simple as uh people that come to your shows right the way through to just a massive fan base. And I like the word community because actually how many times have you like gone to gigs and you see the same faces and then maybe you're like start becoming mates or you go to shows with your buddies and that is a community thing, right? From the smallest level to the biggest levels and biceps started with their blogs and, and then their, their, their shows that they were doing way before they did an album. They, they had a whole community of people that were completely engaged in what they were doing. And you can't manufacture community. It is or it isn't. It is legitimate or it's, 
it's just it's vacuous so that's a really really great like that's a dream for a label right because more often than not as a label you're just elevating the work an artist has already done look how amazing that is this people these people have done this let's get it into more people's ears and eyes and to their wallets and then um you you build on that right the other side of it is you know you look at some like black country who hadn't been around as long but they were part of a really exciting scene around the windmill and the speedy underground stuff and there was just there was a lot of buzz and there were people were going to their shows and they were really avid and you could just start to sense that this was maybe they'd done and two seven inches or something before and so not a huge amount of evidence yet for how big it could be but you you can just see that there was the people were just ready to just throw themselves behind that project as a as a fan base and so for some folk it will take years to build that but if it's legitimate you'll enjoy every part of it and for others it can just happen really fast you just right moment right time you've got the right kind of people around that just it just touches them and they want to they want to go on that journey with you yeah, amazing. Yeah. That was really interesting, just those two two different sort of two different journeys that led them to the same point of being signed to the same label, I guess. Exactly. And that's why I, it's sometimes quite difficult because there's just so many routes, right? You, you could start DIY doing like the things you way want to do it. And actually, because it's it's so genuinely to, to you as a, as an artist or whatnot. It just builds a massive, a massive amount of love and interest, and then actually a label can come along. But like, this actually is totally viable. You know, perhaps we wouldn't have been able to do it if you hadn't already done that. You've put in that work, and we'd love to, we'd love to go that journey with you, and and then invest in it. So sometimes starting DIY will lead you to that. You look at like stuff around the smell in LA. You all these DIY artists just like doing a thing, being in that venue, that little DIY punk venue. And then some of them just go off and become really culturally important. It's it's wicked. Yeah, amazing. And on that um, DIY sort of vein, mm. something we haven't touched on yet is you also run a small label yeah. yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how how does that A and R process differ between like a beast like Ninja Tune yeah, yeah, yeah. and your label, which is First Terrace? Yeah, avidly we're avidly loss making, but. Um, <laughs> No, do you know what? That, so that kind of falls into the other side of things I was making. That was never started as a commercial venture. Like, it, we're fortuitous in that it's become self-sustaining. But, you know, I run it with a, a friend of mine and we said, look, if we wouldn't both sign it, no, sorry, if we wouldn't both buy it, we, we, we shouldn't do it. We're, that's, a, that's the minimum, which doesn't always happen at a bigger label. Something just makes financial sense. It kind of works with the brand of the label. Cool. And, um, and it's really... a about trying to to do the community stuff we talked about in the sense like working on a project with someone that can be all right we'll go out together in berlin we'll set up this interactive under like thing in someone's basement it'll be dead dead shonky but it'll be really fun and you get all your friends down and you sell some records and and then you just you go from there but you try and give as much creative collaboration as possible whether nine times out of ten it makes no financial sense but it's just because the most important thing for us is like this has to exist let's just do this record let's like work with this person and have fun with it make friends not contacts 
sounds dead corny, but that's been my philosophy. And then I've had a lot more fun since I've doing it that way. So, so that's sort of been that really. And you know what? Then when it goes well, it's so validated. Because when a couple of them have gone well, you're like, oh, there was no compromise on this. That's so nice. Um, yeah. I feel like maybe that's an amazing message to end on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hopefully. No comp- compromise, hope it goes well and feel so validated. Yeah, worst case end. scenario, right? I've got 300 records that I wanted to own anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? So. Um, yeah, I think, we, I think we should probably wrap it up there. Thank you cool. so much, Alex. No, it was a pleasure. Thanks um, for having me. And uh, also a huge thank you to to the organisations and funders that have made this possible. Arts Council England, PRS Foundation, Audio Technica for the sound, uh, Pirate, Ableton, our partners. Um, and most importantly, huge thank you for Alex Ives. Give up, Alex. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this RA Exchange presented by Future Proof and Rhythm Section. Shout out to Alex Ives, Bradley Zero, Henry, Emily, and the entire team at Rhythm Section for making this collaboration happen, as well as to the Arts Council and PRS for facilitating the live masterclass event. You can watch snippets of this masterclass on our YouTube and Instagram. The track playing in the outro of this episode is Grammar by Floating Points, which came out on Indutune last year. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on RA.co or on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. If you have ideas for guests you'd like to hear on the podcast or stories you'd like to share, please send us an email at exchange at RA.co. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.